0: faithfulness yeah, sure. let me pray god thank you for sam thank you for every man here in this room i pray that your word would penetrate our minds and hearts because it is alive and active and so use this man's uh, faithfulness in preparation um, to speak clearly through him and i pray that for a spirit of wisdom and discernment over our table leaders as they unpack um, these truths so that we leave out of here distinctly different than than we came in here with Thanks for being for this. It's in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, good morning, guys. If you will, take a look up at the screen. A picture is gonna pop up. Before we get to our passage, I wanna talk to you about this picture. Uh, I've shared with you all a number of times each year, a group of guys and I go down to the gorge and do an overnighter and we hike around. And this is a picture of one of the many trails we hike around, but this is very, uh, very representative of most of what we encounter down there, where you're on a, a well-worn path, next to just a giant rock wall that's not going anywhere. It was there way before me, it'll be there way after me. And you've got this well-worn path that a lot who've come before you have worn down, thankfully, to make it easier to trek. And then to your right, it just kind of falls off. And so in some places, as it goes up in elevation, the path you're on narrows and comes to about 18 or maybe 24 inches. And once you get up a good ways, it's like 60, 80, 100 feet drop on your left and rock wall on your right. I don't have a good picture of that because I'm not snapping pictures when we're in those spots. You're watching your steps, right? And so sometimes you get in that spot, it's a little nervous, and you're like, you know, I could have found a different way around here. That would have maybe been easier, would have taken longer. Uh, But this this path that's well-worn seems pretty trustworthy. I don't know what's under my feet. I can't see down there. But you've got to watch your steps. And there's certainly been over the years, those who have been a little little braggadocious, a little self-confident, that don't watch their steps and one misstep and you can get hurt really bad. And I show you that picture because our passage today is a whole lot like this. It's a whole lot like a truth that is immovable and it's given to us and a path that's laid before us for us to go down practically. And if we're not careful this morning as we walk through this passage, a couple missteps and we can be really hurt. Like, we can land in some theological hot water, but we could make some summary statements in here today, if we're not careful, that would really offend and hurt a number of us in this room, and I mean that. So I I really want us to watch our steps and to be careful as we trek through our passage today, and that'll make more sense as we kind of get into it. Uh, So this week we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. If you will, go ahead and open up your Bibles, or if you use our uh, booklets that we've got, you can turn to session 5, and the text is printed there. As you turn to 1 Corinthians 5, just by way of reminder, uh, as we've studied this letter, it's just helpful to know, maybe this is your first week, Uh, Corinth was a port city, so a lot of people coming in, going out, a lot of different ethnicities and cultures, kind of a melting pot, if you will, and Paul goes there and he plants a church, and he plants a church carrying the gospel of Jesus Christ. He goes into Corinth and he says, hey, Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, Everything back in history has been pointing downstream to him that he is God in the flesh that he came to earth He lived a perfect life. He died a sinner's death for us because we've all sinned We've all fallen short of the glory of God Jesus's sacrifice at the cross paid the penalty to redeem us to the father Because of that we are now sons of God. We are in union with Christ. We are justified. We are saved now because of that Jesus commissions us as our Lord and Savior to go and make disciples of him, to go and baptize people in his name, to go and teach them all that he has commanded us. Now we go and we live a life that looks like Jesus so others can know about him. Paul goes to Corinth and he plants a church with that truth. Then he goes and he does it elsewhere. And then he gets word that in Corinth things aren't going so swell. And so he writes this letter to address a few issues and to remind them what he had already taught them. So that's kind of our context as we turn to 1 Corinthians 5, and our, our, our chapter is only 13 verses long, so we're going to go through the whole thing today uh, together. So if you will, let's just take a look at it, and I'll read through starting in verse 1. It reads, it's actually reported that there is a sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate, for a man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and put him out of your fellowship, the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of the Lord Jesus is present... Hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Verse 6, And your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast, so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread, of sincerity and truth. Verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave the world. Verse 11, But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater, slanderer, drunkard, swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside and he quotes the Old Testament here. Expel the wicked person from among you. <laughs> what a fun passage, right? <laughs> it's one of those where it's like, man, there's a big wall. I'm just going to take this other way. We'll just pick a different chapter like. Awkward. So this is, this is why we just go verse by verse because we trust that God's ways are best And we're just going to walk through what feels like a mess. And I think we're going to learn a lot from it and have some practical, tangible things that help us in our walk communally as a church and even individually as we try to walk and look more like Jesus. So just look back up again at verse 1. A few things I want to point out. It says, it's actually reported to me that there is a sexual immorality among you that the pagans don't even tolerate. And what is that? What is that situation? A man is sleeping with his father's wife. Your translation may say he has his father's wife. So that that verb tense, is sleeping with, has his father's wife. It's written in the present infinitive. It's, It's written in the present tense. It's not past tense. It's not, hey, there was this one time situation that happened. It was real bad, but it was one time he was sorry for it. They've all made amends. It's been restored. That's not the case. It's present it's ongoing. He says, this man has his father's wife. Some commentators think that uh, in an honor-shame culture, the most offensive thing you could do would be to shame your father. So the most offensive way Paul could write this would be to say that this man has slept with his father's wife. So there's a, there's a chance this could be his biological mom. Also, other commentators argue and say, uh, well, it'd probably just be more straightforward. And Paul would just say, Well, Paul, uh, or maybe Paul would have just said the man is sleeping with his mother. So probably, since it doesn't say that, his mom's passed. His dad's likely remarried. This is probably his stepmom. Not as bad, maybe. Regardless, this man is in hot water. Paul is disgusted by it. And he, he says to the church in Corinth, hey, unbelievers who don't even have a standard of truth that we carry, they know that's wrong. And this is going on. It's ongoing in your midst. Like, what's the matter with you all? Like, a a couple chapters ago when Burke was leading us, you know, the whole milk, meat, like, I thought we were past this, guys. He's going in here. And he says, this man has his father's wife. Like, what are you all doing? I think he has to think, you know, you know who wouldn't shame his father? Uh, I don't know, Jesus, the one that I came and taught you all about. And you're meant to go and look like and now I hear that this is going on in your midst? Like what, what are you all doing? Like Paul is, I think, firmly rebuking them. And this is where we have to watch our, our steps on this path because as we kind of parse this out, we have to recall that this is a case of unrepentant sin. This is ongoing sin. It's not a, a one-time mistake that they've made amends for and repented of and turned from. This is an ongoing situation. And if we're not careful there, as we walk through this, this can feel, this can feel like legalism. It, at very surface level, it can feel like, hey, this guy did something wrong, kick him out of your church. That can, that can feel like legalism. Ronnie said this in the, in the opening in the MC time that and you've probably heard this before that obedience is God's love language. And really where we get that is when Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Like if I love my wife, I'm not gonna intentionally do things to harm her because I love her, right? And so it's, it, it, if you love the Lord, you're, you're gonna to wanna to do things that honor him, things that bring your father glory. And so Paul is pretty fired up and leans in here on them. I found a, past, a, a quote from a pastor that said that the proof of your pardon is your passion for purity. That's a lot of peace. That the proof of your pardon, the evidence that you are in Christ, that you have been justified is now your passion for your purity. It's your pursuit of holiness. So look at verse 2. He says, and you are proud. If you're using this uh, workbook, feel free to circle at the beginning of verse 2. It says, you are proud. If you jump down to verse 6, it says, your boasting is not good. So verse 2, you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? So Paul, Paul makes it clear real quick there's this external sin that's going on that's obvious and everybody knows about it. But he starts to point to this internal reality that has led to this situation and he points to their pride. He says, you're proud, you're arrogant, you're boastful. One commentator says it this way, that in Corinth, their arrogance gave rise to tolerance to sin. That their arrogance gave rise to tolerance to sin. And when I read that, I thought, man, Unfortunately, I think I do that too. Like how often in my own pride that I don't see because pride can't see itself, I think, well, you kind of minimize. It's not that big of a deal. And you play the comparison game, look at what's going over there. Like my sin is not nearly as bad as that. And it's kind of what Kyle has been talking about the past couple of weeks in the sin circle. It's easy to stand outside the circle and point at those in and to minimize your own sin. But the reality is we're all sinners. We've all fallen short. And so Paul points to this reality that they have a, a sin problem, and that's what's puffed them up and led them to ignore this ongoing sin. And he says, rather, you should have in humility turned to mourning. Let me, let me give you a, a, a picture of that, and this is a story I really honestly don't want to tell you, and that's how I know I'm supposed to. So on Tuesday nights, uh, my wife goes to a, a small group women's thing, and so on Tuesdays, I'm responsible to. Mr. Mom flies solo and doing the bath and bed routine. I've got a almost six-year-old and a four-year-old. And uh, this was about a month ago on a Tuesday night. And we had just gotten out of bath and I'm trying to get my four-year-old dressed. My six-year-old is by nature very much a rule follower, much like myself. And my four-year-old is a lot more of a, uh, a rebel. We're still working on first-time <laughs> obedience. The word no seems very complicated to him so far. But I'm trying, to, I'm trying to just simply get his pajama shirt over his head. But there's a toy on his dresser. He's reaching for him. I'm Like, hang on, buddy. Hang on. Let me, let me, let me, Dad's trying to get your shirt. Hang on. Sit still. Wait. Just wait a second. You've probably played this game, right? So uh, four or five times later, I'm still trying to get the shirt over his head, and he's fighting me trying to get to this toy. Hey, buddy, just wait. Let me just get your pajamas on, and then you can play. Let, let, just, okay. Okay. You go to put the shirt on. They start squirming. I didn't even feel this coming on. But just out of nowhere, I screamed in his face, Stop! And instantly he just wells up with tears and he starts sobbing and he dives in, into my chest. I can just feel my face get red and a wave of just shame come over me. And I scoop him up and I'm like, buddy, I'm I'm sorry. And before I can say another word, Big Brother comes running in. Dad, you should have been self-controlled and gentle. <laughs> And patient. I'm like, okay, I don't need fruit of the Spirit right now. I got this. Okay. Buddy, I'm sorry. I, I should have been gentle and self controlled and big brother. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. And so then I, I apologize to Noah and I say, hey, buddy, can we pray? And then I have to repent before God and then to thank God that he's a perfect father who doesn't lose his cool and scream in his four year old's face at times. I was led instantly into mourning over my sin. I was embarrassed by my sin. I'm embarrassed to share that story with you guys. But Paul, he says, you should have gone into mourning. You should be embarrassed by this happening. And instead, verse two, you are proud. <laughs> like, what's wrong with you all? And I think there's probably different things that could lead to a group of believers not wanting to acknowledge a sin that's going on in their midst. Maybe, maybe they're so puffed up, they think, man, we do so much good, that's just one little bad thing. Like on the, on the scales, you know, surely there's way more good than bad, so it's not really a big deal. And they minimize, they excuse it away. I, the text doesn't tell me explicitly how their pride led to that, but Paul makes it clear there's a connection here. And so what he points them to is this principle, this practice, that your Bible, there's probably a heading that says church discipline. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. And, and Paul walks them through a means by which he encourages them to remove this man from their fellowship, from their assembly. So again, if you have your, if you have your booklet, I would encourage you in, in verse 2, you can circle the word fellowship. Down in verse 4, he says, so when you are assembled, I would circle assembled if you jump down to verse 11 he says anyone who claims to be a brother or sister i would circle brother sister that's familial language verse 13 expel the wicked person from among you i'd circle expel so paul kind of gives this 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 familial language this congregational language throughout this passage to say hey when you are a flock when you are assembled in your fellowship members of your flock brothers sisters in the faith You should remove this person from the the flock. This is where we get this idea of, of church discipline. And in our context today, most churches use the term member to designate whether you are in or out, whether you are a covenantal partner in a local community of faith. If you have leaned in and say, hey, I'm part of this, typically that's where we get the word member. So this is where I need to be careful and walk my path because there's a bunch of us in this room probably who a lot of our life, we weren't a member. Maybe presently, we're not a member of a local community of faith. So let me just say a few things about this, a couple caveats before we dive further into the text. In our culture, we are the, for sure, the most individualistic society in the history of man. You couple that with just ongoing consumerism where I constantly have to sell you on my product being better than the other 30 products available on Amazon Prime. Like, it's so easy for us to walk into a church with those, those lenses governing the way we, we see everything to say, well, it, it's kinda like my favorite restaurant. I'm really into this for a while, but it's kinda gotten boring, the same old thing, I wanna go try something new. Or maybe we see it like a movie theater where I go in for a couple hours of entertainment and I walk out and I just, I'm a critic now. That's not the picture of the church that scripture gives us. The picture, the English word that's probably the best picture for what the church is in in scripture is a family. It's a covenantal group. It's a family in a local area. And so when we say the word member this morning, that's what I'm talking about. A covenantal member, covenantal partner in a local community of faith. And so what I'm going to encourage you guys is to say that membership really matters, but also I I want to make this real clear. I am in no way saying that whether you're a member officially at a church or not, that that has anything to do with your eternal salvation. Like you can go your whole life and never be a member at Southeast Christian Church and that has nothing to do with whether you spend eternity in fellowship with God. The only way any of us get our sin dealt with and get to get to the Father in union with him is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, that's it. It has nothing to do with Southeast or anybody else. It's only through Jesus. Let me just explicitly state that. Also, let me also give this one more caveat and we'll keep moving. I know enough church history to know that the practice of church discipline, it's been done wrong a whole bunch of times. Like some people have been done dirty a whole lot of times. And so for that reason, a lot of people have said, nope, not going down that trail, I'm gonna go another way around. And that, Truthfully, I don't blame them, I get it. Like, If, if you look at some of the early church uh, Bible translators like Wycliffe or Tyndale, or look at early reformers like Luther, man, church discipline was done pretty dirty. And some of those guys were even killed. So I just wanna acknowledge, this has been handled wrongly a number of times over history. And I, I'm sure some of you in this room have been hurt by the church in a formalized way, and for that, genuinely, I am sorry. I don't want to be trite about it, but I do want to be clear that just because people have stepped off the path does not mean the path is bad. This is the path given to us by Scripture, and so we want to, we want to trek on. And so I just want to encourage you guys the membership matters. And if you're not a member of a local church, I would encourage you this morning, talk about that at your tables. Like, parse that out, why that is or why that isn't. And I know a number of you guys don't go to Southeast. We've got Northeast guys, Highview guys, Sojourn guys. That's great. Wherever you're a member of a local community of faith, a covenantal community of faith, I would encourage you to seriously consider membership because you need membership to have church discipline. And church discipline matters because sin is communal. Sin is communal. It's not individual. We think that it is. You think that if you log onto a website, nobody knows about it. It doesn't hurt anybody. But the truth is, and you really know this, the truth is that relational strife afterwards that you have with your spouse or significant other, that affects them. The shame that you have and the breaking in, in your communion with the Spirit and the Lord, that's real. You feel that. That's not just you. Think about on the other side of the screen, the people who are doing that, the people who are involved, the industry that that fuels and supplies, really the trafficking industry. Oh, no, no, no. Sin is never Individual. And we learned that from the beginning of the Bible in chapter 3, that sin affects everything. Sin is communal. And so Paul makes the case that here in Corinth, that the church is both culpable and corporately responsible for dealing with the actions of this individual internally. And he says, instead of being proud and arrogant, you should mourn about the situation. And there's no joy in removing someone formally from the church They're not laughing about it. He's saying that their mourning should lead to that. Brokenness over sin doesn't tell God, no, 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 I could never remove somebody from a church. That's too mean, that's too hard. It's too judgy. Really, only pride says God's way is wrong. And if this is God's way that we're supposed to follow this model, then in humility, we should should track on. So look at verse three. We'll get moving here. Verse three says, for my part, Even though I'm not physically present with you, I'm with you in spirit as one who's present with you in this way. I've already passed judgment in the name of the Lord on the one who's doing this. Paul's like, hey, if you're stalling on dealing with this, waiting for me to show up, stop wasting your time. You know my position on it. You don't have to wait till I get back to Corinth. You can deal with this. This is pretty straightforward, guys. Don't wait on me. Verse four. So when you're assembled, when you gather together as a church, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of the Lord Jesus is present, You can remember what Jesus says in Matthew 18, when two or three are gathered, I am there with you in your midst. He says, when you all get together and you know my position and Jesus is with you as you are assembled as his church, verse five, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. That's a pretty weird one, isn't it? Can I be honest with you guys? I'm just gonna be real direct. I don't exactly know what this means. Like I have some suspicions and we're going to talk about it. But this is one of those things in scripture where I'm just like, I I don't have my head fully wrapped around exactly what that means. And I just want to be honest with you guys about it. So we're going to look at some other passages here that I think kind of give us an idea that we can kind of form an opinion on it. But this is one of those areas that it's just not super straightforward. And I just want to be honest about that. So, Paul uses similar language in another letter he wrote. We studied this letter, 1 Timothy. In that letter, uh, it'll pop up on the screen. He, he writes to Timothy and he says, Timothy, my son, uh, I'm giving you these commandments. Go on to verse 19. Uh, where He's encouraging Timothy for holding on to the faith, but he says, hey, there's some, there's some among you there in Ephesus in this church where Timothy's at. There's some among you who have rejected their faith and have so suffered shipwreck." with regard to their faith. He uses this nautical term, like they've thrown their faith overboard. Verse 20, he says, among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan so that they might be taught not to blaspheme. So those names, Hymenaeus, and if it's the same Alexander, pop up in other places. And what's clear is that he doesn't mean something physical here. It's not like there is an altar to Satan where they're like, you know what? Let's go kill him over here. Their time's up, they're going. This seems to convey more of like a spiritual note to it. There seems to be something spiritual that's going on here. The only other place in scripture where this wording comes up is in the famous Old Testament book of Job. And if you remember the the story of the suffering servant Job, if we look at Job chapter 2 verse 6, the Lord said to Satan, very well, then he is in your hands, but you must spare his life. So Job is handed over to Satan. Now, this isn't necessarily apples to apples. That's not a church discipline situation. And Job opens by describing him as being a very righteous man. But in one way or the other, he is handed over to Satan for a season of trial, temptation, and really suffering. Financially, physically, emotionally, mentally, relationally, almost in every way. But what was the result of that? If you jump to Job 42, 6, Job claims, he says, my ears have heard of you and now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and I repent. And dust and ash. So if you remember the the story of Jonah, they would put on sackcloth and ash. That was this Old Testament picture of mourning and of lament. So Job is handed over and the conclusion of it is he acknowledges who God is and he repents and he mourns. Now remember, our verse said let's hand it, he's going to be handed over to Satan so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. There's one more vo- verse I want to point out to you. It's in Matthew 16, where Jesus... Um, this is after the famous confession of faith, where Jesus says, Hey, wh- who do people say that I am? Elijah, Moses, some of the, you know, one of the prophets. And then Peter stands up real confidently. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus like, bingo, buddy. And then he says, I tell you the truth, Peter... You are a rock and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus says, I'm gonna build a church, my church. And my church is so strong because it's my church, the gates of hell can't stand against it. And so as I kind of just think through this, it seems like formally, if the church expels a member and says you are no longer part of our covenant of faith and you are removed from the covenantal family, It is almost as if spiritually they are handed back over, away from the blood of Jesus to the powers of darkness. That's weird and I don't really understand that fully and that sounds messy. But here's what I wanna wanna highlight is that in verse five, he says, let's hand him over. There's gonna be some kind of destruction of the flesh, some kind of suffering he's gonna have happen. But the end of verse five, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. If you remember two weeks ago when Burke led us through chapter three, there was that, that phrase, the day, the day of the Lord, that this final judgment that's coming. Paul's saying, hey, remove him from your midst, and hopefully, hopefully he'll end up like the prodigal son. Hopefully he'll come to his senses, he'll repent, and he'll come home. There's nothing joyful about wanting to kick this man out of their flock. It's we have to expel this unrepentant sin from our flock. For the good of the whole, as we'll see. And the hope is that really this man, this man would come to faith. So let's talk about bread. <laughs> let's look at verse six. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread, leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and and truth. So Paul now goes into this rich illustration of bread that has a lot of layers to it, you know? And as, as I kind of thought through this, uh, yeast, like during COVID, it seemed like a bunch of people got real into making bread. Any of y'all notice that? How many of you, just be brave, how many of you made bread? Okay, all right. How many of your significant others made bread? Okay. All right. All right. So not a huge portion either way. Okay. Yeah. Me too. I'm not, what I was going to draw was this illustration of how little yeast it takes to make a big loaf, but we don't care so much about yeast. Let's try this illustration. Quick show of hands. How many of you guys have, uh, have gotten to a loaf of bread and found mold on it before? Quick show of hands. Be honest. Okay. Here we go. All right. All right. Now b- be honest on this one. Be brave. How many of you throw those slices away and still use bread in that loaf for a sandwich? Look around, guys. These are the real heroes in the faith. Golly. Man, walking by faith. And the rest of us, what do we do? We just chuck the whole loaf, right? You know what I'm saying? Like you get in there and you find one that looks like blue cheese and you're like, oh no, and you pitch the whole thing, right? I'm sure you can relate to this, but I personally have had a number of experiences like this. Where there's a situation where someone says, I'll never go to that church. Do you know who goes there? Let me tell you about this one person that goes there. This one moldy slice of bread, I'm going to throw the whole loaf away. Doesn't that happen a lot? So Paul uses this rich image of bread. And he, he makes this case that unrepentant sin in a flock affects everybody. It affects everything. And in other parts of scripture, bread and yeast is used. Paul points to it in Galatians when he's talking about legalism. Jesus points to it when he's, when he's rebuking the Pharisees and their teaching. This idea of yeast and bread comes up a lot. Uh, but he points back to the Exodus, interestingly. He talks about the Passover where the people of God were enslaved in bondage in Egypt. And they were told, take the blood of the sacrificial lamb, put it on your doors, and the destroyer, the angel of death, will pass over. And hey, when you go to eat the celebratory meal, we don't have time to use yeast. We don't have time to let this dough proof and then wait, fold it, let it proof. We don't have time for that. You make unleavened bread, quick, flat bread, because we're about to run out of here. We are gonna turn, English word, we're gonna repent from our bondage and slavery and we're gonna run out of here. And Paul uses that language and he says, catch that, Jesus is the sacrificial lamb. Like, what are y'all doing? We've already been set free Jesus paid the price. And now I I hear about this is going on in your church, something that even unbelievers know is wrong. How how arrogant and prideful could you all be? Like, what is that about? And he points back to to the Exodus where, if you recall, they are set free graciously by God. And then in the wilderness, that's where they're given the law. That's where they're told how to live. That's where they're taught how to enjoy their freedom. They weren't given the law and said, hey, if you follow this perfectly in legalism, now I'll set you free. They were set free and then told how to enjoy their freedom. And I think Paul points back to that. And I I think for some of us, for, for some of us, I think you have been set free and yet you are still walking in shekels That the sin that has been a besetting sin that has a hold on you, that you need to repent from and turn from, that you feel like you can't break that addiction, you can't break that cycle. Can I just encourage you that if you are in union with Christ, Romans 8 says the same spirit who raised Jesus from the grave dwells in you and he'll give life to your body as well. And that you have the power to overcome the power of sin. The presence of sin remains one day that will be dealt with. But the power of sin no longer is able to reign over us if you are in Christ. Look at verse 9. Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with the sexually immoral, not at all meaning people of this world, the immoral, greedy, swindlers, idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave the world. He says, apparently, he had written them another letter previous to this. Your translation may say, in my previous letter. So Paul says, hey, I wrote to you previously saying, hey, don't hang out with the sexually immoral. And what I heard was, you thought that meant don't hang out with unbelievers. And so you all just stay in your little tight-knit group and you don't talk to unbelievers. He's like, that's not what I meant. Like, if if I meant never talk to unbelievers, like, you'd have to leave the world. You couldn't talk to anybody. Like, what, what what are you thinking? He's like, no, no, no. What I meant was anyone who claims the name of brother or sister, anyone in your flock who lives like an unbeliever, that's who I was talking about. Just a little nugget real quick on biblical interpretation. Isn't it interesting that Paul says, oh, hey, you, miss, you misinterpreted what I said, and now I'm writing you to clarify that. Don't you wish Paul wrote commentary on like the whole New Testament, just to make sure we all got it real clear? Wouldn't that be helpful? And he says, hey, you misunderstood that. Regardless of what you think the Bible says, regardless of what you think I meant by that, here's what the author meant. And he says, hey, I, I didn't mean Unbelievers. Of course they're going to live that way. They don't know Jesus. He's not their Lord. I'm talking about people who claim the name of Christian and continue to live as if nothing's changed in their life. That's the people I was talking about, Paul points to. In verse 12, he says, What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? What I just said, hey, they don't know Jesus. Why are we going to judge them? You leave that to God. And he says rhetorically, are you not to judge those inside? Verse 13, God will judge those outside, expel the wicked person from among you. And so if if you remember up in verse five, and I referenced a moment ago about the day, one thing I want to highlight here is that Paul, I think, is pointing to a future date where when Christ will return and every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, there will be a once final and for all judgment and there's no do-overs. And Paul points to that, and I I think this practice of church discipline, I think the church functioning this way serves as a signpost of a coming event. I think when the church passes judgment on an unrepentant person within their midst and removes them from the church and passes judgment on them, that can feel harsh, that can feel legalistic, I know, I'm watching my footing. But when when the church functions that way as God has designed it stands as a signpost for the whole world that one day there is a future judgment coming. Like if the church won't pass judgment, then we must not believe in judgment. And we do believe because that's who God is. He's not just Lord, he's not just Savior, he's also judge. So there's, there's a layer of this, uh, an eschatological, a future-looking end times layer to this that when the church lives this way, it is a declarative sign towards a future judgment. So as we kind of wrap this up, I just want to reemphasize that unchecked pride, boy, it leads to tolerance to sin and sometimes even approval of sin. Unchecked pride leads to tolerance of sin and we need a community of faith around us to keep an eye out for that. Proverbs twenty-seven, seventeen: iron sharpens iron, right? And so church membership matters because church discipline is important because sin is communal. And unrepentant sin infects the whole batch. Like when we do the generosity challenge in the fall, let's say we have 50 tables and 50 single moms that we bless and we encourage in the name of the Lord. And let's say, let's say my boy Jeff Wachtel over here, his table, let's say they throw in a thousand bucks and he sends a picture out, got $500 worth of diapers for our single mom, God bless her. And the guys are like, hey, where's the other 500 bucks? It's like, man, I work hard for y'all. I bring coffee every week. Like, you know, I do what I can for this table. I know how he does. What would the headline be? The headline wouldn't be 49 tables of of God-fearing men who who served 49 vulnerable women. No, the headline would be local Christian man embezzles money and serves himself. like, Like one unrepentant sin infects the whole flock. And sin is communal. So as we turn to our tables in just a moment, we've got to be authentic and we've got to be vulnerable so that pride can be disarmed, so that sin can be exposed in hopes that we will then, by faith, turn and repent of it and the bride of Christ would be made holy. And we do that for the good of the whole and for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word uh, that is sharp, Sharp as a double-edged sword that it pierces bone and marrow. And thank you, God, uh, that you provide not only your word, but also your spirit to help us to receive it and for it to take root. God, parts of this are a really hard teaching. And I know a lot of men in this, in this room have been hurt by the church, Big C Church, over the years in some way. Spirit, would you would you expose pride and sin that we might repent and turn from it? Would you help us to desire holiness? Would you help us to want Christ not only as our Savior, but also as our, as our Lord? Help us to, to serve and encourage one another at our tables and help us to do this for our good and your glory. It's in Christ Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thanks for listening to this week's Bible teaching from Man Challenge at the Blankenbaker Campus of Southeast Christian Church. For more information on how to get involved, reach out to us via the email address in our podcast description or find us on social media.